Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of our Seven Investing podcast. I'm Seven Investing founder and CEO Simon Erickson, joined by my colleague, Seven Investing lead advisor Steve Simonkin. Steve, how are things up there with you in Montana today? They are great. It's still smoky. We're surrounded by wildfires, which is the only bummer, I think, uh, at the time of maybe living in Montana at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing, one other thing that's been on fire lately, Steve, has been SPACs. We've been talking a lot about special purpose acquisition companies. Uh, we had a SPAC chat, part one, a couple of days ago, and we realized we had more than enough material to make this into a two-part podcast. <laughs> Uh, Steve, probably enough material to make this into a 13-part podcast. <laughs> I was going to say 10, 15, 20, however many parts you want, we could talk about this and make its own podcast maybe. But Oh, for yeah. sure. But we, we decided on, you know, the first part was really an introduction to SPACs and a couple of things that we were looking at. And we're going to come back for the second part and dig a little bit deeper into the trenches. Um, talk a little bit about some of those metrics we introduced in the first <laughs> podcast. And then we've also got a variety of SPACs. Uh, that we're going to look closer at. We're going to actually look at some of the deals that have been done or are about to be done and offer our investing perspective on this. Steve, are you ready to get started? I think we've got a long podcast ahead of us. Here. Uh, absolutely. We'll, we'll see if we can grind through this and not make it three hours. I, I think we've got plenty to talk, but yeah. Grab a cup of coffee if you're tuning in for this one. It's, it's one that you'll want to be caffeinated for. Uh, but to kind of start, maybe not at the highest level, but a layer that's still sufficiently high in altitude, we defined a couple of things that, that we look for in SPACs in the last time. And I want to drill down to a couple of the specifics of, of what it might, might be important when you're looking at these deals. And the reason for that is SPACs are not just the same as IPOs. They're not just you go public and you buy into the equity of the, of the business. Uh, you're buying into, at least if you're buying before the merger takes place, you're buying into a shell company that raises a lot of money and then merges that with an existing privately privately traded company that creates a consolidated entity at the end of the day. And so if you want to think about this in, in terms that, that might make sense, uh, think about a giant swimming pool. And the overall allocation of the swimming pool gets split up between different groups in this transaction that's known as a SPAC. Uh, the first part of the pool is owned by the people who already had the pool in the first place, right? The private right. ownership of this business before it was publicly traded in the first place. But then over time, a SPAC uh, emerges, it raises public funds from, from investors, and then they get an ownership of that business over time as well. And so there's a portion of the pool that's for the people that buy into the SPAC itself. And then there's even a third portion of the pool too, that are the financial sponsors, the deal makers that actually make this entire transaction take place as well. There are ways of rewarding them through equity. So they get a portion of the pool as well at the end of the day. Steve, I don't know if that analogy worked or helped at all, but that's kind of how I think about who owns this back at the end of the day. Sure. Yeah, uh, that, that works perfectly. Three three different pools. It's, it's like the little dividers in between, but they all come out owning uh, parts of the company and everybody gets a little something for it. And, and you know, of course, the, uh, you know, the SPAC sponsors uh, should get a piece and, and be rewarded for their effort in bringing this company public because th that's what SPACs are. It's an alternative method to bring your company public. And uh, rather than going through a traditional IPO or even a direct listing, uh, you just merge with this uh, basically shell company and, and, uh, and, and you find a, a relatively streamlined, uh, comparatively simple way to, uh, to bring a business to the public markets. 
Yeah, absolutely, Steve. And the first thing that I think that's important for investors to consider is what is the size of the swimming pool? You know, what are the gross proceeds that are being raised in this SPAC uh, shell vehicle that we just discussed? And then what is the overall valuation of the company after it's going to go public? And so are we talking about a SPAC that's raising $200 million and that is going to have a, a, a public valuation after the merger of six or $7 billion? Uh, or are we talking about a SPAC that might be raising two or $3 billion in initial proceeds and then that might have a, a enterprise value down the line of, of $15 billion or more. I think the first consideration that I look for is, is how big of a deal is this going to be? And kind of, um, you know, or what kind of valuation are we talking about for the final company? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, well put. Uh, that's that's a, a great way to put it. I mean, we also want to look at, you know, who gets what pieces of it. Uh, you know, I, I found myself kind of looking into lockup expirations, like when can these insiders sell their shares if they want to, you know, because that can put some pressure on the stock and, and uh, you know, what are the, the, the economics, you know, do they, do they benefit from economies of scale? Do they have operating leverage as they build up? Is it super capital intensive? You know, one of the businesses we'll be digging, digging into soon is, um, but yeah, uh, lot, lots of stuff to look for uh, with these businesses, uh, kind of in addition to and uh, in, in, in common with you know, existing IPOs. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's, that's interesting about these specifically is instead of just looking at business fundamentals, we've got to look at the deal specifics as well. Steve, you mentioned the, the sponsors, the people that are raising the money and doing these deals in the first place are rewarded for making deals happen in the first place, you know, we see that a lot of times if you're a financial sponsor, you have the clock ticking of two years to actually make a deal happen. But then in addition to that, uh, there are awards for making the deal happen. We think of these in terms, uh, we, we call these um, kind of earning out shares over time. We call this in lingo, the sponsor promote, where you can buy shares at a very, very low price. If you close the deal, you can actually exercise those at a much higher price. And then there are also things called earnout provisions, where of that portion that you get as a sponsor, you might actually give a sweetener, a sweetheart deal to the, to the company that closes the deal with you, where you say, hey, we're going to award you additional shares in the future if your stock price hits a certain threshold when it's publicly traded in the future. So there's a lot of considerations, right, for the financial sponsors piece yeah. of this SPAC um, thing that's taking place. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um I, uh, yeah, and I, I'm anxious to kind of dig in. So uh, maybe we go there. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just kind of one thing to look at as well is um, a lot of SPACs initially will start trading at a, at a price of $10 a share. Right. Uh, that isn't a meaningful number though, right, Steve? What does that $10 a share actually mean for us? Yeah. Uh, so we mentioned uh, during part one of this podcast that, that $10 per share uh, is, is basically a function of how many shares they want to issue, right? So don't get too hung up on the fact that it's $10 a share. That doesn't mean um, you know, that this company trading at $10 a share is valued the same as another SPAC uh, that is starting at $10 per share. Um, you know, you look at the actual enterprise value and, uh, you know, look at the debt they're, they're bringing with them, look at the cash balances, uh, and, and, you know, look at trailing revenue and growth rates. And, um, you know, that $10 per share taken in isolation means nothing. So, uh, don't, don't get too hung up on that, uh, at this stage. Just, just remember that's, that's a starting point, but, uh, needs to be considered in line, uh, with, uh, in conjunction with, with the other metrics that actually make share prices meaningful.
Yeah, absolutely. We have to look definitely at the number of, of outstanding shares that would be uh, involved in this transaction, right? So even if everybody's getting it at the same price of $10 per share, how many shares are going to be allocated to the existing business that's privately, privately funded right now? Uh, how many are going to be are going to be warrants that are available for the sponsors? How many are warrants are going to be available for the the uh, investors in the SPAC itself? And then the one thing we haven't even talked about yet, Steve, is a lot of these deals are bringing in private investments um, from other companies, right? There are larger corporations that sometimes want to get in a piece of this pie. We yeah. call that pipe funding, right? Where we're bringing in other people, other corporations that want to be uh, involved in the SPAC IPO as well. Yep, private uh, investment in public equities, right? Is is what the the pipe stands for. So you'll see, um, you know, you'll and when you see them announce spec deals, they'll say, you know, this is a, a spec deal that comes with this much held in trust by the spec sponsor, as well as a you know pipe investments of one point two billion uh, from these various investors. And these can be corporations, they can be um, retirement funds, they could be individual kind of investors, institutional investors rather. Um, so pipe investments are also kind of important to the amount of proceeds that these companies are bringing with them to the table when they are officially in public business. Yes, that's right. And so we're going to look at a couple of specific deals here. And Steve, I'll have a, you kick this off here in just a minute with the first SPAC that you're looking at, but sure. kind of set the scene again of what we're looking at. A SPAC is a little different than a traditional IPO because- mm -hmm. What you're doing is you're raising money in a shell company. And as an investor, you can buy into that shell company before it actually has a target in mind, before it actually announces the company that it wants to merge with. Uh, if you do that, you're, you're betting on the jockey. You're saying that, hey, this financial sponsor is going to find a good target and uh, be a good steward of my capital. Uh, or you can actually always later on, if you don't want to get in before the transaction takes place, you can always wait until the combined company uh, does go public. It typically will change the ticker that it trades in uh, later on. And then that is when it's actually just a regular publicly traded company that can issue new shares and everything that we've gotten used to still applies. Yeah. So we're going to be looking at a couple of things. We're going to be looking at who the sponsors, who the deal makers are, who are the private companies that are being acquired? How do their fundamentals look? Uh, how large of a pool are we pulling from, from of capital? There's a whole bunch of considerations which is, I think, what makes SPAC investing so interesting um, is there's a lot of things for us to dig into like we love to do as investors. And so, Steve, I, how about if we if we look into the first one of these? What's the first company that, that you've been looking um, at for our podcast? Uh, how about we start with uh, with SoFi? It's uh, a Chamath SPAC, right? Uh, that, that's one of those. Uh, so we asked for... Um, kind of feedback on, on some of the businesses you wanted us to look on into on Twitter. And uh, I got SoFi several times. So uh, let's dig into this. And uh, it was a company that was already kind of on my radar as well. But uh, SoFi, if you're unfamiliar with it, let's let's talk about the business first before we dig into some of the specifics of the SPAC, right? So SoFi is a, uh, a next-gen financial technologies platform. Uh, they essentially want to be a one-stop shop for financial services. And uh, they say their mission is to help people reach financial independence and realize their ambitions, uh, which they make a point is not the same as simply becoming rich, right? They want people to be able to manage their money effectively, and they want to be able to provide them solutions 
um, to do any part of that. So uh, they're entirely um, digital routes, right? So it's a completely digital uh, experience. They don't have physical branches like a normal bank. They're not even a bank yet, uh, by the way. So, uh, you know, when they, they want to do everything from borrowing to saving to spending, investing, they have brokerage accounts, uh, protecting your money, kind of budgeting. Uh, they have solutions for all of this. So uh, this kind of comprehensive suite of products um, should really, uh, you know, basically, they, they have a huge advantage as an integrated digital platform, right? And they're built from the ground up that way. Uh, they note that, and this is something I can relate to, uh, that, you know, the top 10 banks hold around 50% of all consumers' bank accounts. There's 500 million bank accounts in the United States, I believe. And uh, top 10 hold half of them. And half of all Americans use more than one bank for their financial services. I know that's true for me, right? Uh, you know, I've got, you know, different you know, credit cards with a couple different companies. I remember opening an American Express card forever ago uh, because it was the only one Costco would take. And, uh, and, you know, I've got a couple different brokerage accounts at different places. I have different checking accounts at two different organizations. And part of it's just because they, certain organizations work well. Uh, they do really well at certain things, but not really well at other things. And SoFi wants to kind of streamline that. So uh, really interesting business in that sense. It was only founded in 2011, uh, which is also interesting in and of itself. Like, did I know SoFi existed in 2011? No. Uh, and part of that's because they were founded as a student loan refinancing company. That was kind of how, kind of reminds me of, of an Amazon being founded as a book selling company, right? Uh, so student loan refinancing, uh, but man, have they grown and expanded their reach since then. Uh, they've got all these products um, from you know, money to, to relay, which is the budgeting thing, their invest segment, which is like brokerages. They have home loans now, uh, still have in-school loans. They have a credit card, they have ETFs, they have rewards programs. Uh, and actually most of them uh, were launched in the last two and a half to three years which is kind of bonkers as well. Uh, they've just sort of supercharged their growth. Um, kind of just mind boggling to see uh, how quickly uh, they've grown. And, and to that end, uh, you know, looking at their most recent quarterly results, they say their, their member count was up 110% year over year to 2.3 million. Uh, their growth has actually accelerated year over year for each of the past seven quarters. Uh, they said they're on track to reach 3 million members by the end of 2021, um, but they also have even bigger plans going forward. Uh, they acquired a company called Galileo uh, for $1.2 last year, just prior to going public. Uh, Galileo is a banking infrastructure technology platform. Uh, it's basically comprised, there's a financial services API for programmers and a payments platform which has 70 million linked accounts and uh, actually SoFi money, apparently their checking and savings solutions were already tightly integrated. And they said, wait, we should probably just own this. Uh, but it also gives them additional relationships uh, with both consumers and business to business links. Um, and then maybe one more thing before we kind of move on to SPAC specific details on cash raised and such, um, Earlier this year, SoFi you know, spent about $20 million, tiny little acquisition to acquire a community lender to speed up the process of obtaining its own bank charter. So mm -hmm. Call Square actually just received their bank charter approval, I think in March. And uh, SoFi, which is, uh, make no mistake, a Square competitor uh, when it comes to being kind of this one-stop shop for all things financial, uh, is expected to receive its own bank charter by the end of this year. That should basically allow them to enjoy lower cost of capital, uh, higher lending growth, operating leverage as a result, significantly improve their financial profile and their ability to increase their lending businesses. So um, 
that is something to watch and also a big risk. Like if, if they hit a hiccup in that, um, you know, a big part of the bull thesis is their ability to secure a bank charter and uh, really kind of even further supercharge their growth. Um, so, all right. Kind of cover the business. interesting. See, yeah. I mean, like it's such an interesting company. I think that they've really benefited from what I, I maybe we refer to it as a commoditization of capital, right? If uh-huh. you're taking out a loan, like you start out, you've got a student loan, maybe at 6%, 7 or 8%. Good Lord, I know I was there and had those. <laughs> you, you don't really, really care in these days, you know, if it's your neighborhood bank that's right down the street, or yeah. if it's some other lender that's online only, that's going to give you a much better and more attractive rate. And it seems like SoFi wants to be the platform, the relationship with those people over time that kind of benefits with a whole bunch of lending facilities all across the country. Yeah. So they want to say, okay, we don't want you to have a checking account with Wells Fargo and a brokerage account with Robinhood and your student loans with Student Assistance Foundation and, you know, on and on and on. They say, we'd like you to be able to do all this with us, right? So, um, but now they're public and, uh, you know, they kind of had access to additional capital to help fund this because a lot of this is very capital intensive, especially, you know, bank charters and stuff. They need to be able to, to take deposits. Uh, they'd like to be able to, and, uh, and earn interest on them and reduce their, their you know, cost of lending. Um, so, uh, through the process, through this back itself, they raised about 2.4 billion in cash, um, pretty hefty rates, right? And uh, post-money valuation at the time of the SPAC was about $8.65 billion. Uh, the amount that they raised included a fully committed pipe. Um, and again, that's that private investment in public equity, as we mentioned before, of $1.2 billion. Uh, those pipe investors included Chamath, uh, Chamath I want to say Chamath. Uh, they included his social capital, uh, Hedda Sophia, um, fund 275 million from them and another 950 million from uh, a variety of other investors, BlackRock, Altimeter Capital Management, uh, Barron Capital, several other big name uh, investors. But altogether, about 2.4 billion in cash uh, that they pulled in as a result of this. Uh, they also, one of the things that I kind of stumbled on a little bit was they had a very interesting lockup structure, right? And there's been you know some criti- uh, criticism of, of Chamath for uh, his he's got so many irons in the fire, right? Take Virgin Galactic, for example, people were just really annoyed that he, he basically sold his entire personal stake to fund other investments, but uh, their lockup structure at uh, SoFi was really interesting um, because none of the pipe investors were subject to lockup expirations at all. And uh, remember, this is a really fresh uh, um, SPAC, a freshly public company. This only went public first day trading, I think was June 1st. So a month and a half ago. And uh, the other lockup expirations uh, hit, I think, a month later, uh, and they were tied to the performance of the stock. So if the stock was trading 20% above, certain tranches were unlocked. If it was trading 50% above, 80% above. Uh, so I think around 80% of their insider shares were actually uh, the lockup expiration expired at the end of last month. So we've seen a little bit of selling pressure and we've seen some analyst commentary about what to do around the lockup expirations and everything. But, you know, one of those things with, uh, with a lot of um, SPACs is that, you know, normally you see longer lockup expirations to kind of prevent these guys from selling if they really want to. Um, but there weren't a lot of limits in this case. And, and not that that's necessarily a big deal, but I think we keep our eyes on uh, who's willing to sell in these early stages, who just wanted to cash out and who's hanging on for the long term. Uh, that's not entirely clear at this point, but I think um, we should get more clarity on that you know, over the next couple of months, couple of quarters, uh, and see who's willing to hang on and, uh, and ride this out and uh, enjoy per- potentially the fruits of a longer term investment. So I haven't seen any great dump from the pipe investors who weren't 
subject to any lockup expirations at all. So that's encouraging, uh, but keep your eyes peeled. And, uh, you know, looking at uh, going into the SPAC, I think the, the sponsor ended up owning about 20% of shares outstanding. SoftBank's another big investor. Mm. Uh, when we look at that, I think uh, around 15% of shares outstanding. Uh, I, I expect uh, those numbers have dropped. I think maybe SoftBank was down to like 8%, so they cashed out a little bit. Um, lots of moving parts to this though. Uh, lots of stuff to watch. And, uh, you know, they, it does have warrants in place. I think I saw, uh, the value of the warrants, they just changed it. So that's a little confusing as you dig into some of the more recent documents, because the sec issued new guidance on how they needed to account for, uh, SPAC warrants. So you saw a lot of companies kind of restate financials. Um, but I did see, I think it was 21.8 million, uh, in, in, in warrants on their balance sheet as of the end of the last quarter. But I expect that's going to kind of be a moving target depending on how they're forced to actually account for those uh, in their accounting. But uh, those uh, I don't believe are exercisable for at least a year after the merger. Um, so perhaps some impending dilution uh, in you know, 11, 10 and a half months from now uh, that we need to keep our eyes on, uh, but definitely an interesting business and, and one that uh, is, is you know, raised more than a few eyebrows for, for reason, I think, exceptional growth. Yeah, and it raised a lot of money too, Steve. I mean, two point four right. billion dollars. This is this is a big time. Uh, this is one of the largest SPACs out there, right? Anytime I have times yeah. with uh, Chamath being on board, and I believe the uh, SoFi's CEO came from Twitter, right? Wasn't he COO of Twitter before? So, I think so yeah, this is one yeah. of those change the world kind of companies. Um, certainly makes sense that banks have fallen behind in digital technology. Uh, even all the big banks, I, I would I would go as far as to say they are behind a lot of other apps that are out there in terms of mobile and, and just kind of getting everyone's attention. I think that this is a great chance uh, for a guy who knows Twitter and kind of knows you know how acquisition costs being low are very important for banks. Yeah. Getting people on the platform is super. I mean, it's it's certainly intriguing. Now, this is de-spec, Steve. This is not actually waiting out there for a merger to take place. This has already happened. You can buy into SoFi with the ticker SOFI today. Are you intrigued as an investor? Is this one on your radar of any interest to you at all? Yeah, uh, I definitely am. You know, after after digging in, uh, I'm I'm looking more closely at this company. And and one of the interesting things, you know, you look at that post money valuation, a little under eight point seven billion, I think, right at right out of the gate. Um, seems, whoo, that's a lot of money. Uh, and now, you know, even just looking at its market cap, quick glance is over 12 billion today. Um, but also look at big competitors, you know, like Square. Square, I think, is over 100 billion. Um, Wells Fargo's market capitalization is 185 billion. Uh, and, and the argument goes, you know, why can't once it achieves, you know, once it gets approval for its own bank charter, why can't a, a new company, however young, and, and fresh, uh, a new next generation uh, financial technologies company rival the size of them over time. Uh, those big competitors that are, you know, plus 100 billion, nearly 200 billion market capitalizations, massive enterprise values. Uh, there is potential. That doesn't mean uh, that its returns will, will follow suit. And like I mentioned, we, we're probably going to have some dilution along the way. And, uh, and, and there is going to be, you know, a lot of capital. Uh, that it's going to need in the process, but uh, but it has some interesting operating leverage uh, that it can realize, especially as a digital only platform. Right, that's uh, that's really intriguing. So uh, definitely um, higher up on my my uh, level of interest as as I dig in closer than it was uh, before I, I took a closer look at it. So um, most certainly really interesting. 
Yeah, definitely a good one, Steve. SoFi, again, the one that Steve looked at really closely here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with another big one here, Steve. I'm going to put another one on our list to keep, to keep an eye on, and that is Ginkgo Bioworks, uh, who's going to be merging with Soaring Eagle Acquisition Corporation. The ticker on the SPAC for that is SRNG. Now, again, this is pre-transaction. This is, you know, we've announced the merger to take place. This is not as far along as, as SoFi, as you just mentioned, Steve, that's already taken place. This is one where we've raised the funds into the SPAC and it wants to merge with Ginkgo Bioworks. And this is a, another very, very large raise, $2.5 billion in gross proceeds. Uh, $1.7 billion of that would be coming from the uh, Soaring Eagle Trust of cash. They have an additional $775 million in pipe funding. Uh, and they've also got the financial sponsor. So overall consideration, this would be a $15 billion enterprise value company. That's extremely high for a transaction in this, in this space. And so why would it be worth that much? Well, it, what Ginkgo Bioworks wants to be is they're calling themselves the organism company. Uh, what they are doing is they are kind of combining biology with computation. They want to program life. They want to program cells to do specific things that could have commercial activity out there. And so this was uh, founded by four MIT PhD students uh, with their professor, Tom Knight, who's been doing this for several decades. And they just said, hey, if we can engineer, if we can do the computation engineering for a cell, just the same way that we would do the engineering for, for programming a computer, we can use cells to create several things that could be very useful in the future. And so some of the initial proof of concepts of this would be microbes uh, for enhancing the fertilizer and nitrogen uptake of crops. Uh, there's definitely a lot of crops out there that, you know, row crops across the entire world. We've got to feed more people every year. What if you could be more efficient in absorbing the nitrogen by controlling at the DNA level the microbes that are, that are enhancing the nitrogen uptake for that? We've seen it for fragrances. We've seen it for several different synthetic chemicals. This kind of new field of synthetic biology needs to be printed at the DNA level up. Uh, rather than do the best you can in chemical plants to control things, what if you could design and engineer cells specifically? And that's what Ginkgo Bioworks wants to do. This is an incredibly disruptive company. Uh, just like we saw Moore's Law continuing to drive down the cost of, uh, of transistors that were going on to integrated circuits and being used for processors of computers, we've seen Tom Knight's Law is what Ginkgo Bioworks likes to follow too, where they have seen a decrease of 50% per year and, uh, in, the, in the cost of engineering a single cell. And then also the number of designs that they're testing is tripling every single year. So Steve, when I look at that, I think immediately of disruptive innovation. I mean, you see something in right. incredibly uh, exponentially improving in those kind of terms. This is one that's shooting for the fences because it's a really big opportunity out there. Yeah. Um, the first thing that pops in my mind is, is what kind of competitors, you know, if any publicly traded, uh, does this have on the market? Like who, who, who does this? <laughs> well, and so much of it right now is, is still in the, in the R and D phase, right? Like you look at maybe one, I don't know if it's concern yet, but something that raises an eyebrow for me with Ginkgo, which is that they've got a $15 billion enterprise value. That's really expensive, Steve. Yeah. And the company as a whole is still doing less than a hundred million dollars in revenue every year. So you're talking about almost a 200 price to sales ratio as of today. Yeah. But the way that to answer your question of, of you know, who are the competitors out there, they're structuring these um, relationships with customers to be either a chunk of royalties in the future where they say, hey, we go out and we help you design this. We want a percentage of future revenue. 
or we want a percentage of equity in your company as we grow this up. And so when you look at these projections, they're very small today. I think it was 69 or, or maybe $70 million last year in terms of the foundry revenue that they were doing. Um, but this is the hockey stick, right? It's okay in SPAC world to talk about things kind of growing on the S-curve and the expectations of something like this growing really quickly over time. Certainly, certainly that worked out that way with Moore's Law and in the world of computing and IT. Um, it looks like based on the data that they're showing, we're in a similar situation where we could be engineering life and engineering cells, just like we engineered computers. But again, Steve, this is one that you've got to have a lot of faith in management because of such lofty expectations in their projections. Yeah. um, I mean, I feel like (laughs) it it feels a a lot like some of the biotechs that Max Max pitches, you know, like uh, do we have sort of these, uh, these binary events where their, their technology proves, um, you know, what happens if, if something disrupts them or their technology proves not as effective as it was previously? Like what, do we have any sort of, uh, kind of, kind of catalyst events, uh, that, that could actually say, you know, this is, this is sort of a watershed moment for us. Yeah. It's gotta be a really big win with commercial customers, right? Like yeah. you've seen them kind of join for one of the Joey JVs that they had was with Bayer, joined Biosciences, where they were actually doing it for the nitrogen uptake. I mean, if you get a hit, it's going to almost certainly be a proof of concept at first. Bayer is not going to back the entire truck up of their global business and say, hey, you get everything now. You start small, uh, you show that it works, you do a kind of a scale up and you show that something even larger works. And then all of a sudden, if you keep proving your numbers and, um, and it works out the way that a large corporation would want it to, you suddenly get a really, really big hit that's worth billions of dollars. Yeah. And I think that's the answer, that if you want to justify these valuations, you have to take management at their word for it, but you also kind of have to keep an eye on the developments of how they're working with their commercial partners. Yeah. So, so I guess that leads to the next question, you know, who was the, the, the SPAC sponsor that decided this was worth pursuing and, and why and at what valuations, the market opportunity, et cetera. Um, yeah. Go on, please. <laughs> Soaring Eagle Acquisition Corporation. I'm so glad you asked, Steve. Uh, This is the same team that always has Eagle in the name, right? They've had Diamond Eagle. I think it was Flying Eagle before that. Now it's Soaring Eagle. So we're moving on to uh, keeping the same theme in place. This is the same team that brought uh, DraftKings and also um, Skills, both public, right? DraftKings is is helping with online sports betting. Uh, Skills is is allowing for um, e-sports. You know, these are kind of platforms that are appealing to either uh, online gaming or, or online betting, sports betting. And DraftKings was a huge success, Steve. If you remember this, this is one that kind of raised a lot of money in the middle of pandemic. This yeah. team uh, saw the opportunity to raise some money. And I think it was a $2.7 billion valuation at that time. Now, if you look at uh, DraftKings today, it's around $20 billion. So this yeah. was very successful even after the initial SPAC IPO for that company. Skills, similar situation, uh, raised a lot of money, did very well for itself and for its investors the uh, director, uh, the, the uh, leader of the um, founding sponsor, the financial sponsor, was previously CEO of MGM. Kind of interesting. You know, he has no problem raising a lot of money. He's got a great Rolodex of people that want to put a lot of money into his ventures. And it's been interesting to see him now going after a really, really uh, big fish here with Ginkgo. To review some of the numbers, Soren Capital raised $1.7 billion into the trust. That's the cash that they actually raised from their individual investors. Uh, they put another uh, uh, 
uh, pool of money into uh, this from their own financial sponsors. Let me see if I can catch that number. I've lost it again real quickly, but they had their own shares as well for the financial sponsor shares for that. And then $775 million of pipe financing. too. So this is big fish that are on board for this thing. Uh, big expectations. The thing that caught my idea, my ID, my, my eye was the idea if I can get that out, see if I might need another cup of coffee here pretty soon. I'm, I'm having some tough time with all these words. Maybe it's because it's a biotech company. <laughs> um, they're giving away 30% of the sponsor promote for uh, an earnout provision. So what that means is uh, 30% of the shares that the financial sponsor could earn uh, if they if they actually close this deal, they would give away if Ginkgo Bioworks hits a certain threshold of a stock price in the future. And that's incredibly high, Steve. We typically are used to seeing like 10, 15% of those earnout provisions. This is an aggressive one that they say, hey, if Ginkgo hits $18 a share or $20 a share, we're going to give away a good portion of our own provisions. Right. Um, that's a, a lofty goal when you're already saying, hey, this is worth a $15 billion enterprise value. But again, it's kind of saying, hey, Ginkgo, do you think you can do this? That hockey stick of your projections, can you think you can actually pull that off? Yeah. And, and the stock price would follow suit and be worth $20 a share. Um, everyone has a lot to win in that situation. Not just the financial sponsors, not just Gingo Bioworks, but also us as individual investors that buy into the SPAC. This is one of those kind of swing for the fences, go big or go home. Um, it's lofty. It's expensive. Um, you got to know there's a lot of risk that you're getting into as an investor for this one. But on the other hand, if they do knock it out of the park, you can be handsomely rewarded for something like this. Yeah. Um, really interesting. I knew exactly zero uh, about this company before you started digging in. So uh, I'm, I'm along for the ride here. It's a tricky one. It's, it's a SRNG again right now. That is the pre-transaction SPAC. <laughs> that's taking place. This deal is expected to close in the third quarter of 2021. Steve, I think okay. it's one that we definitely should keep an eye on, especially if you're a fan of life sciences and uh, computation and genetic engineering. It's all pretty fascinating stuff. Wow. Uh, so that's Ginkgo Bioworks. What's the next one on your radar though? Steve, you got another one you want to take a look at. Oh yeah. Uh, I got a lot of requests for Open Door, and uh, you know, I, I am also a, a shareholder in Redfin and Zillow. So, hey, right up my alley. Uh, <clears throat> really interesting company here, Open Door. Uh, they call themselves a leading platform for residential real estate. Uh, and yeah, that, that holds. Uh, they are the market share leader in the iBuying market. So uh, companies that come directly to you and buy your home and resell it. Like you could call it house flipping. I don't think they like that term when you bring it up <laughs> because it indicates, you know, they're buying these rundown houses and fixing them up. That's not the case really. Uh, but it is interesting because, um, you know, they were only founded in 2014. So seven-year-old company, uh, really, really interesting. Uh, they went public by uh, also by way of a Chamath SPAC uh, in December 2020. So less than a year they've been on the public markets. Uh, this is kind of, again, um, kind of like SoFi, but a little bit, uh, a little bit more distance between us and that officially going public. Um, so they've had a, a heck of a ride with their valuation. They immediately soared to uh, about an $18 billion enterprise value. Uh, even though the spec valued it, at, I think it was 4.8 billion net of cash. It was like an enterprise value, like 6.3 or 6.4 billion. Uh, now it's current market cap sits around 8.7 billion. I think I agree more with its valuation today. Uh, even then that seems a little bit rich. Um, but people are rewarding them for their scale and their market leadership as kind of an early mover in this iBuying market. So uh, they were previously focused solely on iBuying. 
right? So um, they will come to you. You could go to their website, request a, an offer on your house and get it in minutes. Um, but the problem, I guess, maybe not necessarily that much of a problem is they're only available in 27 markets at the end of the quarter, big metropolitan markets. So it's not like, you know, I typed mine in Missoula, Montana here and uh, just as expected, it said, nope, we're not available there yet. Here, go ahead and, and request it if you want. Uh, but this is kind of how iBuying is, right? It's still this very nascent market, very sort of in its infancy. Um, and, uh, you know, part of iBuyer's strength kind of relies on their ability to capitalize uh, on this large market with economies of scale. And, uh, you know, can they efficiently price homes? Can they sell them predictably? Uh, can they make the experience as smooth and predictable as possible? And that is kind of what what people who are selling their homes to companies, and, and now there is a little bit of optionality. I'll give them the credit for that, right? They, they just launched, uh, there's cash offers that they have. Uh, they have a mortgage service now, so you can actually finance with Open Door in some cases, not everywhere yet. Uh, and uh, you can list your house uh, with an Open Door agent if they are part, it's a partner agent thing, but it's still a really, really tiny piece of their, their business. So it's kind of the opposite of Zillow, which started uh, with real estate listings, advertising, advertising, and is muscling into the iBuying market now. And, uh, you know, they, they've been pretty efficient uh, with that scale early on. Uh, they, they boast that over 700,000 people have already requested quotes from them. Uh, the vast majority of those quotes can't be fulfilled, unfortunately. Uh, but I think they've helped uh, something like you know, 90,000 people uh, sell their houses this way uh, since they were founded. So a pretty impressive start. Um, similar to SoFi, it's entirely digital. Uh, so that's also kind of nice. People have some semblance of certainty. You know, they don't have to go through and do any repairs on their house. Uh, open door is interesting because, you know, they'll charge you something like a 5% commission, slightly lower than a normal uh, real estate experience. But if there's any repairs that need to be done, they just take it out of your selling price. And they tell you, so um, you just kind of list it with them. They say, here's our offer. We might take a little bit out from, you know, here's a, here's an allowance for, for repairs and people don't have to do much. It's not the, the stressful real estate experience of the past. So, so kind of interesting um, for perspective, you know, looking at their latest quarterly results, they, they bought around 3,600 homes last quarter. Uh, that was up 78% sequentially and 24% year over year uh, as they re-ramp from kind of this COVID route. Everybody kind of put everything on hold uh, during COVID. And uh, they so, you know, up 78% sequentially from last quarter just because they're kind of re-ramping again. Uh, so bought 3,600 homes roughly, sold almost 2,500 homes. That ended with about $841 million in homes on their inventory, uh, in their inventory on the balance sheet. Uh, that equated to about 747 million in revenue last quarter. Uh, and obviously these are large transactions. It's not high margin revenue. And that's kind of what really matters in the case of this iBuying market, right? So unit economics. Um, now what's interesting is it seems like Open Door is enjoying a little bit of operating leverage uh, as they kind of re-ramp again, which is nice. Their adjusted EBITDA uh, was just a negative 2 million last quarter. That's about 0.3% of revenue. Uh, narrowed significantly. I think it was something like 20, minus 26 million uh, quarter before and minus 20 million. Uh, same year ago quarter, uh, it was about minus 10.9% of revenue uh, three months ago. And uh, so anyway, uh, they lost a little more than 900 bucks a home <laughs> that they sold, which doesn't sound great. Uh, but what happens is, is you see this, you know, eventually you want to be um, adjusted even positive. And that was actually close uh, to where Zillow was as they started the ramp. I think Zillow uh, lost about 
$1,500 a home uh, a quarter ago as they're, they're kind of starting their own ramp. So as they scale, uh, one would expect their ability to enjoy operating leverage uh, should kind of increase and their ability to kind of um, effectively price homes should, should help. So, uh, you know, my, my big concern with Open Door is competition, right? There's really four big iBuyers on the market today. Uh, you have Zillow, which I, I so let's let's take this in terms of market share. Open Door, I think last year was like 50% of the market, but that was down pretty significantly. Uh, then there's Zillow, which had at like 26% market share, uh, and they've significantly scaled. I think in 2018, Zillow only held like 3%. So Zillow is coming up hard and they want to scale this. I think they said to like a $20 billion annual uh, run rate. Um, so Zillow is, Zillow's might, might overtake them and uh, that headline won't be pretty, but uh, they will try and stave them off. Uh, there's OfferPad, which is right behind Zillow at about 23% uh, last year and Redfin, which holds only like 1%. So Redfin is kind of the baby in the market, but hey, uh, Zillow was only 3% a few years ago. Redfin is also a significantly smaller company, but uh, something to watch, I, I guess, is kind of those market share numbers as they fluctuate. And uh, remember, these are companies, uh, when a company can hold 50% of a market and only be available in 27 large metro markets, um, it's a lot of room, right, for for multiple winners and, uh, and I think there's room for, for all these companies to kind of grow. Uh, it's going to be years and years before they really start um, kind of butting heads. And uh, yes, they're all starting in these larger metro markets. But uh, uh, I think the, the bigger losers in this case are kind of your legacy uh, mortgage brokers and your, your legacy real estate companies that kind of try and do things the old way. So uh, these digital platforms are, are taking... taking uh, taking share from everybody else in the process as they grow. So, uh, and also, I guess the other thing that I'm, I'm a little concerned with, uh, with open door is it's kind of lack of a, uh, network effects from its actual platform, like Zillow. People go on there to look up details on their house. They look up details on everybody's house. They have maps, they have Z estimates. Um, you know, they have Trulia, you know, a couple big old platforms. Uh, open door doesn't have that kind of leadership, but they still, uh, nonetheless, I, I think have more demand than they can handle. Uh, so it's not really that much of an issue at this stage, but over the longer term, that'd be something I'd definitely be watching. So uh, as for the SPAC itself, uh, to move forward that way, uh, Open Door went public uh, with the aid of around 414 million in cash from social capital itself. Uh, pipe of about 600 million, uh, 200 million of that pipe came from social capital. The rest from a variety of shareholders, again, including BlackRock, and I think there was a retirement foundation and um, and, uh, interestingly I was digging in I was like, okay, what do they got for warrants? Um, just, I think it was June 6th. So like a month and a half ago, they announced the redemption of all outstanding warrants. Um, so I think they forced them to redeem and, uh, said, we're going to pay you these and get them off our books. So we don't have to worry about that so much. Uh, so that's not an issue, uh, going forward, but I mean, all in all really interesting company, uh, growing quickly, able to scale, probably some operating leverage in there. Uh, somewhat potentially steep valuation for currently thin margins, but uh, but you know something worth watching. And and I'm not totally convinced that I want to sell my shares of Zillow and Redfin yet to to go by Open Door. But uh, it, it's definitely an option for kind of enterprising investors who are looking for potential portfolio candidates. Steve, I know you followed real estate for a long time now. You know, as an investor, and, and, and you talk to people about how real estate looks right now, the climate for real estate. The typical reaction is is kind of a combination of it's bonkers or it's crazy or they raise their eyebrows or yeah. you know, people are going nuts. I mean, like it used to be that you'd go, you'd, you'd hire a real estate agent, you'd look around, you'd find a good deal 
out there in a neighborhood you want to live, live in. And then you'd say, okay, let, let's do that. And then we'll fix the air conditioner that needs to be fixed. Yeah. And now it just seems like more recently, uh, people are accepting offers that are 20% above their asking price just on the very first day that it was listed. Mm-hmm. And people think that this is crazy, but do you think that this is just kind of a, a short-term um, spike in the market of real estate? Or is this kind of the new way that, that this whole market is going to look like? Um, I, you know, I don't think this this current craziness is totally sustainable at this point. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. I saw a press release from uh, Redfin earlier today that said something to the effect of uh, demand for vacation homes, second homes, uh, fell for the first time in over a year. This might be the end of the, the it's one of those big spikes. I don't know, like people buying second houses, that's what you're using. Um, but yeah, demand is crazy. And that's another kind of risk, right? Is be, that these companies kind of need to move a little bit fast because if we do have kind of this upheaval in real estate prices and you're carrying 800 million plus in home inventory on your, your balance sheet, I'm going to need to be able to move that pretty quickly. But if anyone can, they can. And I, you know, I think it takes them less than a couple of months to turn these houses. In a lot of cases, um, they're allowing people to sell their house and buy another one simultaneously. It's just like, here's a you know nice, even across swap. And, and uh, they're, they're pretty efficient that way. So uh, you do need to, to kind of keep the ability to, to slow things down or move things up. And, and if COVID taught us anything, it's that, is that uh, these companies can, can pivot pretty hard if they need to. Uh, down and uh, and scale things back and scale them back up, um, but those ebbs and flows are going to be some you know they're going to be something that you really need to watch, especially in a market as crazy as today's uh, as far as real estate goes. So, that's definitely want to keep an eye on Open Door, uh, Steve. Ticker on that one, if we wanted to get into to Open Door. Yes, O P E N is the ticker on that one. Yep, good deal. And then one more that I want to throw onto the consideration too is, uh, Steve, I know that you are a big fan of Virgin Galactic. Uh, you and I both watched on Sunday Richard Branson get fired up into space, which was pretty exciting to see him kind of float around in zero gravity and then come down and, and talk about how exciting it was. Right. And so I had to give another space-themed SPAC for you here, uh, which is Rocket Lab, right? Rocket <laughs> Lab has now announced that, that it wants to come public through SPAC. It would be merging with the, uh, the SPAC vehicle, which is uh, Vector Acquisition, V-A-C-Q is the ticker on this one. Again, one that's announced and planned and in the works right now. Rocket Lab is kind of what they're trying to do is, in, is an end-to-end provider of the commercial space economy. So if you need to get into outer space, Rocket Lab wants to be the partner of choice for you to get up there. They can do a couple different things. They can create the rockets themselves to launch your payloads up into space. Uh, they can actually do the launch for you completely end to end and get whatever you're wanting to bring up there uh, and put it up into orbit for you. And then they can also do the applications, the monitoring, the analytics, the anything that's actually being run from satellites in outer space. And this is really, really interesting, Steve, because we've seen the cost of launching to outer space fall by an order of magnitude in the last couple of years. Yeah. The cost per kilogram of payload that's launched to outer space has fallen significantly, largely because of uh, just the computing that's being done for those microsatellites. Um, and then also, in addition to that, just reusable rockets. You don't burn the rocket up and it doesn't fall back down to the ocean. You can actually now reuse rockets that are finely tuned and created through 3D printing and some pretty cool uh, electronics that are going into them over and over again. And that just kind of redefines the entire economics of space and of launching things in outer space. And so Rocket Lab is, is one of those companies that has benefited from this. Uh, Peter Beck is the, uh, the CEO of the company. He's kind of been an aerospace engineer his whole life, really was obsessed with this for decades. And he says, this is the time to start a company that, that he wants to do this. 
They are merging with Vector Acquisition, which is a tech-focused financial sponsor. Uh, the, the, the deal itself would raise um, a total of $320 million uh, from the SPAC itself, the cash, the IPO that would be put into the SPAC vehicle. The shareholders of Rocket Lab themselves would be worth about $4 million in equity and then an additional $467 million in pipe equity. So interesting, Steve, this is a different deal than the last one we just talked about from Ginkgo because you've got more money coming in from commercial organizations than the individual investors that are going into the SPAC. Kind yeah. of shows there's a lot of commercial interest in the commercial space race, as you would expect for something like this. Right. Um, and, and, you know, it is really interesting. It's definitely not the only one in the space that's looking at going public. It reminds me of, of Virgin Orbit, you know, which is maybe worth a bonus mention, right? They're, they're actually reportedly in talks the last several months to go to have like a $3 billion deal of their own. Uh, I think the the sponsor SPAC that is speculated to be that is like NGCA, it's Next Gen Acquisition Corp. But uh, yeah, Virgin Orbit's it's interesting. And uh, one of the things that could apply to Rocket Lab too is is potential optionality for this business, right? Um, you know, I, I think right now uh, I was looking just before we came in, knowing that uh, we'd be talking about this a little bit, uh, the market for space launch technology, right, or space assistance, space launch assistance, and such is like eight to ten billion or something uh, right now. Uh, people expect over the next several years it should be closer to twenty five billion, but there's multiple players, and uh, uh, Virgin Orbit has said that they are planning a pretty expansive. Uh, evolution of their company, I think are the words that they used uh, into things like communication satellite arrays. They said they've been approached by a lot of small companies that have great ideas with satellites, uh, but can't get them up into space uh, on their own with the funding. So they might take small stakes in the companies, um, sort of investment vehicle in smaller companies themselves. But uh, they talk about um, launch technology as a cornerstone of space access and this broader space ecosystem. And for Rocket Lab uh, and Virgin Orbit, uh, I think it's it's really interesting because they they're sort of the uh, the gatekeepers, so to speak, um, to a, a potentially pretty huge market that is still in its early stages. So um, Rocket Lab is is definitely very interesting. Sponsor SPAC speculation, uh, gold star for that one. See, I got to remember that. One. <laughs> Congratulations <laughs> on actually getting that out. Um, I agree with you. This is a huge market. I mean, Morgan Stanley is already bridging. It's a $1.5 trillion space economy by the end of the decade. You can't have huge numbers like that without looking at, you know, where are the applications? And it's going to be all kind of the monitoring, uh, the analytics, you know, what, are you, what is your, what is the data that your satellite is collecting and how are you using that? Steve, I know you have a lot of background in that. You've been doing stuff like that even straight out of college several decades ago. But I think that the interesting thing that you mentioned too is the gatekeepers, this has been the inhibiting step uh, so far. This has been the challenging part was actually getting on a launch, right? Because you typically in the past would have these kind of giant launches, uh, be a huge payload, you had to wait your turn. Sometimes it might take you six months or a year, even to get, you know, where you could piggyback onto one of those large payloads. Right. That's just not the case anymore as, as space is becoming more accessible. Um, yeah. Rocket Lab has got two launch sites. One's in Virginia, the other is in New Zealand. Uh, them and SpaceX are two of the only that are available right now if you want to do ride share or you want to launch something up into space. The yeah. technology that Rocket Lab has is smaller and smaller rockets. So it doesn't have to be massive, you know, largest rocket that you have out there that's going to take, you know, several thousands of kilograms of payload out there. It could be small CubeSats that you want to launch and you want to ride yeah. share with somebody else. You can now book launches for space online if you yeah. can believe that space, yeah. if you can believe that, Steve. Uh, we can send some of our seven investing lead advisors to space and maybe do some future podcasts up there. We can book it online <laughs> if we really wanted to. It's becoming so accessible and it's, it's you know, um, 
Rocket Lab now has got more than 132 annual launch spots uh, that they can actually get those payloads up into space. I think that when you, when you see something like that, you see the inhibiting factor being cost or even accessibility, and both of those are becoming more economically achievable for a business. Uh, you start kind of imagining and brainstorming, what are the opportunities for outer space? And can this really be a $1.5 trillion market one day? Yeah. And um, I think also we shouldn't underestimate the ability for them to, I mean, all, it's it's almost surprising. Like the, the more exciting thing for us at this point is like, wow, there's a lot of commercial interest. Uh, but we shouldn't forget, you know, government and, you know, defense and, uh, you know, you've got NASA and you've got all the armed forces branches. Uh, actually, one of the things that I saw Virgin Orbit talking about was uh, was defense applications. Like, what if we have our, a bunch of satellites taken down? You know, uh, and what happens if we lose those uh, satellites? We can launch them quickly again, get them back up and running. So, you know, so that's something where they could kind of pivot uh, and, and sort of rapid response states. So Rocket Lab, Virgin Orbit, and peers uh, could potentially be really useful in those cases when uh, when you have uh, these sort of uh, defense and security satellites that are that are kind of up in the air, and uh, you know if they get taken down, you can launch them pretty fast back up. So uh, th- there's a lot of interesting uh, adjacent opportunities for this market. And uh, I think people will be kind of surprised because you think, okay, you know what? How big's the market for for satellite launches? Well. Uh, really big you know, in payloads. So uh, there, there's a lot of different ways uh, people are kind of dreaming up to take advantage of this. So uh, that's that's exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And Steve, just kind of looking at the numbers really quickly, we did about $69 million of estimated revenue this year. When you consider the space systems and then the launches themselves, um, the equity value of the SPAC uh, pro forma valuation, of course, is about $4.8 billion right now. So you're still talking uh, you know, what is that, 70 times this year's revenue? This is another yeah. hockey stick that's out there. You see the projections going up significantly as we open up the commercial space economy. Yeah. There's some lofty expectations baked into that. But again, this is another swing for the fences that you get in early. Uh, it could be a really rewarding one for investors who are patient and have an iron stomach for risk uh, to take on something yeah. like this. Yeah, I mean, but hey, you say lofty, and I say that's less than half the price of sales ratio of Ginkgo, right? No. <laughs> yeah, less, less than 200 times. Right. Right. <laughs> Woo. Yeah, steep, but really interesting and, and exciting as this thing scales. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, and so we kind of wrap all this together. You know, a lot of the things that we we're talking about are, are kind of these industries that are in flux, whether it's real estate, whether it's commercial space economy, whether it's genetic engineering. Um, these are things that are, that are changing rapidly, and you've got now a more efficient way to raise money uh, to put on the balance sheet of these companies that need it, whether that's for launching satellites into space, whether that's for doing a foundry for genetic engineering, whatever it might be. Uh, there's capital that's needed that is being more efficiently placed than we could get from the traditional IPO structure. And I think this is why, why SPACs are so fascinating. Uh, not only is it a raise, but and, and looking at the fundamentals of the business, like, like Steve and I always love to do, but also digging into kind of the nitty gritty of the deal itself. You know, who's keeping what percentage of that, of that swimming pool at the end of the day? Uh, who is the sponsor? What's the reputation? Who are the other commercial players that are on board for things like this? All of this factors into the returns that you'll be getting as an individual investor who's participating in a SPAC IPO. And so it's a pretty exciting time, Steve. You and I have talked about SPACs quite a bit in the last couple of weeks but I'm pretty encouraged by all of this. And I look forward to even more of these conversations in the future. Yeah. Um, thanks for digging into this with me. This was fun. And uh, I feel like we could make this a, a daily thing and still um, have way too much information to, to sift through, but uh, it's sure fun to be able to, to tackle a few companies that were requested.
Absolutely. And keep your eyes out. You know, this was SPAC chat part two with uh, my colleague, Steve Simonton and I look for part three, part four. Maybe we'll have part 25 in a couple of months here. It seems like there's plenty to talk about for SPACs, but thanks for tuning in uh, to this edition of our seven investing podcast. We are here to empower you to invest in your future. We are seven investing. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.